you, if you have your Bible with you, turn to Matthew chapter 5. Remember, we are walking through the book of Matthew, one of the four Gospels, one of the biographies of Jesus. And um, this is a particular uh, section called the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5 through 7. And uh, the Sermon on the Mount is one of those sections in, in Scripture with just a ton of very practical um, information, very practical teaching from Jesus, real stuff for real life. So we're going to walk through here and see what Jesus has to say about um, lust. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. Now that is the, one of the Ten Commandments um, in the book of Exodus, central pillar of Jewish life. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. So, what Jesus is doing here is he's taking a commandment, a well-known commandment, and he's kind of um, taking it up another level. Now, we have said in the past that the rabbis would often have their sets of interpretations of any given commandment in the Old Testament, one of the Ten Commandments and beyond, and often they would do one of two things. They would either create a... Um, create a boundary around any given uh, sin in the Old Testament and, and put a lot of burdens on people uh, to keep them from that sin. Or they would go the other way and they would create loopholes. Um, in other words, like, well, he says that we can't do this, but what is this really? We can do this and this and this and this and this and this, just not this. You know what I mean? Where you create loopholes around the, the spirit of the scripture. And we see by Jesus' teaching here that, that apparently boundaries had gotten loose around what was known as adultery. And so Jesus cranks it up a couple levels and he says, anyone who looks lustfully has committed adultery in the heart already. Now, when you look at the word lust, it doesn't mean um, a quick glance. It's not, you know, that kind of a thing. The, the idea here is that you're sort of gaining sexual fulfillment by looking. There's a website called triplexchurch.com, xxxchurch. And it's, it's made by a, a couple of guys that, that are really serious about um, trying to help uh, win the battle against internet pornography and lust and things like that. And the way he defines this passage is, you look once, and I'm a human. Look twice, and I'm a guy. Look three times, and it's a problem. So Jesus isn't talking about noticing the beauty of a human being or even feeling like that is an attractive human being. This is when you go beyond that and actually begin to have some kind of gratification happening through your mind as you think about. And Jesus says that this is the equivalent of adultery of the heart. Now, he goes on to say, and I want to really look at this, and it's, we talked a little bit about it last week. Um, but what we see here is that, that Jesus is really, um, he's giving the reason for, this approach. So it's not just like he's trying to cut out something you enjoy, because I know that, that there's so much, and in, 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 uh, 
it's our own fault, and by our I mean, you know, churchy people for years have created rules about stuff that you cannot do simply because apparently it's, it's enjoyable. And, and Jesus goes on to give us his reason that, he, that he's advising against lust. He says, if your right eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out and throw it away. It's better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to stumble, cut it off, throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. Now, last week, I really I want to call us back to what we talked about last week. Because that word hell there, remember, was a geographical location in its original language. The word is Gehenna. And this is a flaming garbage dump that was just outside of Jerusalem where people would drag their dead animals, their human excrement, things like that. They would drag all of their junk to Gehenna, and there it would be burned. Now, in Scripture, we know that heaven and hell are not about your works. They're not about the things that you do or avoid in your life. Heaven and hell are decisions of faith. The Bible says you are saved by grace through faith. So Jesus would never tell somebody, just don't do that if you want to go to heaven. That's not the language of the New Testament. I think it's fairly obvious that he's talking about something here and now. He's saying, don't let lust become a part of your life and have your whole here and now dragged into a flaming garbage dump. It's as if Jesus looked into the past and looked into the future and saw the millions of lives destroyed by lust. It's as if he saw the millions of children who watched their parents split up because of lust. The millions of spouses who were destroyed because of lust the suicides, the murders that are a result of this sin. He calls it Gehenna, a flaming garbage dump, which the New Testament translators translate hell. And he says, if anything is in your life that's causing you to lust, just cut it out to avoid the flaming garbage dump. Don't Throw your life away. I think today he might say, (coughs) if your laptop causes if your laptop causes you to sin, throw it away. Cut your cable. Throw your cell phone away. Remove the parts of life that are allowing lust, because this is a particular sin that can turn your life and the life of those you love into a dump heap pretty quick. Now, when we break this down a little bit and talk about uh, how to combat lust, because I think that probably most of us will deal with this issue. And if not now, it could creep in at any moment. So this is particularly relevant, and, and I want to I break it down a little bit so we get some, some insight from Scripture and, uh, and just life so that we can deal with this. And the first thing that we need to realize, and many of you do, is that this is an epic battle. 
when you think about the course of history and how lust has played a very real role in the shaping of people and people groups and nations and and you know you, you look through celebrities and athletes and businessmen and businesswomen and, and, and teachers and and how often this kind of a thing just this this one particular sin struggle plays such a huge role in the shaping of society and we should never think of ourselves as above it it would be nice when Jesus talks about living in the kingdom of God. We learn that the kingdom of God is a here and now lifestyle. That's God's kingdom. And there are certain things where you can just kind of flip a switch and, oh, I'm going to live like this and it happens. But lust is not one of those. Purity is not one of those. It's not like you just decide one day, I am going to live in God's kingdom and no longer struggle or be tempted by those kinds of things. It doesn't happen. It's a battle. And the reason it's important to think about that up front is because you can walk out of here today with every intent, I am done with this side relationship, or I am done with pornography, or I am done looking at men or women or whatever like this. And you may have complete and total resolve, but you need to know up front that the battle is not over. It will continue on, and when you struggle with it, it's just very easy to just kind of fall back. But we need to remember up front that this is an epic battle. And one of the reasons that it's such a huge battle is because it exploits several of our human weaknesses. One of the weaknesses that this particular struggle exploits seems to be just absolutely baked into our human DNA. We all struggle with this lie that says this. If I just had that, my life would be better. If I just had that, that thing that I don't have, whatever it may be, my life would be better. And Scripture actually tells us that even though Adam and Eve were essentially perfect, this was the thing that even got them. I want to look at the story, and this is an important passage of Scripture. If you look at Genesis chapter 3, and this is one... Um, this is worth having the gist of it memorized, like it's worth reading it once or twice a month, because so much of our human condition is wrapped up in Genesis chapter 3. Now, we learn that Adam and Eve had been given one rule, basically. Don't eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. <clears throat> you can have every other food in the garden. Don't eat from that tree. Um, Genesis 3, 1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. I don't know how this all worked out where a serpent identifies with Satan and speaks and tempts. And I have no idea how that worked out. He said to the woman, Did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? We may eat from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat from the tree that will, that's in the middle of the garden. You must not touch it or you will die. You will certainly not die, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. And when the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, <coughs> she took some and ate it. She also gave it some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. Um, 
what we see here is the first example in the human race of what you and I struggle with all the time. If I just had that one thing that I don't have, my life would be better. And it didn't make life better for them. It didn't make life better for the human race. And almost always when we see that one thing that we just have to have to make life better, it doesn't really make life better because the next month we have the next thing that we need that would just make life better. And I think if we're ever going to win the battle of lust, what we need to do is realize this weakness. We have to know our weaknesses. And one of those weaknesses is the tendency to say, if I just had that, because that's what lust is. I can't have that, but I want that. So I'm going to take that in my mind. And it goes back to that central struggle of if I just had that, life would be better. <coughs> the second reason that I think lust is such a huge battle that we need to be aware of, and this is something that, um, that psychologists and counselors and psychiatrists and scientists are really starting to learn uh, because pornography has become such a huge issue in our world culture today. Um, when we see images like pornography, neurotransmitters and chemicals are released in the brain that can compete with or exceed real sex itself. And what scientists are beginning to learn is that this chemical reaction is such a real thing that some psychologists and psychiatrists and scientists are starting to treat addiction to sex and pornography like chemical addiction. Because what's happening is real things are happening in the brain to create a sort of high. And once the brain begins to crave that specific high, it functions like heroin or like alcohol or the other things. And it becomes a bona fide chemical addiction. And so we need to beware, first of all, that that can happen when we expose our, our minds to those images, is that we can become chemically addicted to this. And that's a big deal. But it also tells us why we need to be careful that we avoid and that we make sure our children avoid those kinds of images because it has a real effect chemically on our body that can create a real addiction. And one other thing that can be especially dangerous um, with lust and pornography and sex addiction is that, and, and counselors are really starting to learn a lot about this and, and, and um, if a person has been traumatized in their past by sexual sin, molestation, rape, things like that, it is very, very common for the psyche to fight that shame that is experienced because the person almost always experiences shame from that, feeling like it's somehow their fault, almost always. And they will fight that by numbing themselves to sex or being aggressive towards sex. It's like saying, no, that didn't bother me. I'm going to prove it didn't bother me by seeking that at a high level. In fact, it's been um, 
I don't want to say proven, but many like porn stars, when they move out of the industry or become followers of Jesus, will say that somehow in their past there was that kind of a thing. And as they work through counseling, they realize that they were they needed to gain control over the shame by reducing that. <clears throat> so some of us have those kinds of things in our past. And if you find yourself dealing with some kind of a sex addiction today, and you can look in your past and say, here's where some violation occurred, I would say you probably need to get some good professional help and work through that because that's just something that you will fight against because it is a human tendency uh, to, to fight the battle of shame by reducing or numbing sex like that. Okay. Um, Jesus calls his followers to a high standard. Um, one of the amazing things about the kingdom of God and the teachings of the Sermon on the Mount is that they're so upside down. They're so counterculture. And at times they can be very, very difficult, but we never should lose sight as followers of Jesus of the high standard that he sets. <clears throat> and I think one of the most unique and difficult standards that the kingdom of God sets has to do with sex. And, and what I'm learning from Scripture is that actually the bar is set to where th there's this kind of concession, like, yes, I know that sex is a big deal, and I know that you crave it, and I know that it's this, this, this amazing thing. But you as a member of the kingdom of God, can learn to transcend it and can learn to live a life that is above the need and not controlled by the need. And this is, I think, an important message. And I'm going to walk you through this because God's kind of doing this right now. I'm, I think God's kind of teaching me this, showing me this. I haven't read it anywhere, and I'm not trying to get credit for it. I'm just telling you that I may disagree with this a year from now. But... But it's kind of fresh in my mind, so, so I want to I walk you through this. Um, I was in high school in the early 1990s when like, the whole church growth movement was, was, was big. And by that, um, there was like a movement within the church, uh, Christianity in America, trying to implement a lot of customer service principles and making um, the, the, the Bible very, very relevant to people, which is good. I think, you know, a lot of that was good. But sometimes I think we maybe went too far. So when I would go to youth rallies as a teenager, I would hear the sex talk, which happened every week, and it unfolded something like this. Okay, now we all know that there is a problem in the teenage world with sex, and, you know, because um, teenagers are curious about it and experiment with it and things like that. So you need to stop that as a youth speaker. And I have given this message as well, but I'm starting to feel like there's a piece that's missing. So what I would hear is this. Now, we all know that sex is this amazing thing that we really want to experience, which was certainly true. God is the creator of sex. Very true. God made sex to feel good. Very true. God wants you to have a great sex life through the context of marriage. I'm now believing that that is only part.
partially true. And there is somebody out there who God has set aside just for you. Save yourself for that person. Now, this is a great message, a much better message than free-for-all, you know, which is where, like, I think the teen world would probably end up, um, and in many ways has. But what that message does is it assumes that everybody should be married, but I think what's even more dangerous is that it lifts sex up to this thing of almost like a concession. We know you can't do without sex, so wait for this moment when you'll get it. And there are a couple dangerous messages in that. But I want to I turn to two places in Scripture where I think, I, I, I think it helps us because it can help us to gain a feeling of, of control or transcendence over something that all of society has just said, you need it, you deserve it, you can't live without it. <clears throat> 1 Corinthians 7. Now for the matters you wrote about, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. Plain and simple right there. It is good for a man to have, or to not have, Sexual Freudian. It is good for a man to not have sexual relations with a woman. That's plain. It's like Paul saying, here's the standard. You can be above this. He goes down into the concession. But since sexual immorality is occurring, each man should have sexual relations with his own wife. Each woman with her own husband. Husband should fulfill marital duty. Likewise, um, the wife to her husband. The wife does not have authority over her own body, but yields it to the husband. And the same way husband does not have authority over his own body, but yields it to his wife. Do not deprive each other. Um, mutual consent for a time. So you may devote yourselves to prayer, then come back together again. Okay, he goes on. I wish that all of you... Oh, I'm sorry, verse 6. I say this as a concession, not... As a command. I wish that all of you were as I am, but each of you has your own gift from God. One has this gift, another that. Now to the unmarried and to the widows I say, it is good for them to stay unmarried as I do. But if they cannot control themselves, they should marry, for it is better to marry than to burn with passion. Now I think Paul's main point here is that it is best for us to see ourselves as above needing sex. And this is an upside-down message because there is, me- there, there is the message everywhere. You need sex. You're entitled to sex. You deserve sex. You can't be complete without it. Let's look at the words of Jesus. <coughs> Matthew 19, verse 10. I hear pages turning, so I'll wait a second. Hurry up. (laughs) The disciples said to him, now Jesus is talking about like marriage issues, okay? Because pretty much, and I'm going to talk about this a little bit later in the Matthew series, if you burn dinner, your husband could divorce you in Jewish culture. And that's no joke, okay? I, I mean, it was like rabbis would teach. She burns dinner, hit the bricks. The women went and took out all the smoke alarms back then just because 
Um, the disciple said to him, he's talking about marriage stuff, if this is the situation, if I can't give a quick divorce between a husband and a wife, it is better not to marry. Jesus replied, not everyone can accept this word, but only those to whom it has been given. For there are eunuchs, men who've had certain parts removed, who were born that way, and there are eunuchs who have been eunuchs who've been made eunuchs by others. If you served on like a royal court, you were often eunuchified, um, so that you could stay focused. And there are those who choose to live like eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of God. The one who can accept this should accept it. Um, what Jesus seems to say is, in the kingdom of God which has lived on a much higher plane. You can live above some of the carnal and intense needs and wants. Wants is a better term there than you may have. Um, He casts a vision that as a follower of Jesus, you can live without sex. And I feel like we need this message of empowerment because all society does is try to drag us down into a message that you can't do without this and you deserve this. Now, um, let me read to you because I'm out of time. Um, Ephesians 5.3 But among you there must not even be a hint of sexual immorality or any kind of impurity. These are improper for God's holy people. That's the standard of Scripture. And I'm not saying it's easy, and I'm not saying that, you know, not even a hint of sexual immorality. That is God's dream for His people. And I think largely because, I mean, God is the author of sex. But if I were a dad, and I've seen millions of my children destroyed by a human tendency, I think I would tell them, just keep it out of your life. And I can't, it's hard. It's a high standard. But Jesus says that we can achieve it. Let's talk about what we can do, because sexual temptation is a real part of of many of our lives. One of the things that I think it's important to do is to know your weaknesses, know the times when you may may be most susceptible to this, know the situations that you might be most susceptible, and avoid that. Like Jesus says, lop it off, cut it out of your life. And if traveling alone is one of those times, if walking through the magazine aisle at the grocery store is one of those times, one of the things like for, for Kelly and I, we don't have a laptop in the house. We have, a, we have a desktop as our home computer, and it sits in the middle of everything so that in our house, our boys and our family members, they want to use the computer. It's there in the center of the house. Um, another thing I think it's important to do is to be aware of how we use lust, um, Has it become a vice? And if so, be aware that it has those medicating principles. 
and be aware during the times when we feel the stress coming on and we go to our favorite medication, awareness is very important. If you have past um, sexual trauma issues and you struggle with sexual addiction, get the help that you need because it ain't going to go away on its own. Another thing that I think we need to do if it's a struggle is seek accountability. I have um, four men at Polaris <coughs> and one guy who is a pastor down in Canton who I meet with regularly and just tell them, I want you to ask me, have you gone to any pornographic sites? Have you let any woman in your life in any way? Just ask me those questions regularly. Give me an outlet for honesty, force me to lie, do something that, that makes it hard for you to have those things in your life versus just a life of complete silence and secrecy. There's software on triplexchurch.com that will send the websites that you frequent to your wife or to anybody that you choose. And if that's an issue for you, get that software and install it on your computer. Seek accountability. And the last thing I think we need to do is realize the freedom that we do have in God because God has broken the slavery of sex through the cross. 1 John 1.9 says, If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just and will forgive us of all unrighteousness. And we need to realize that no matter how far we go, we have a loving God who will accept us back. And when we live like this, it keeps us from going so far from God that we feel like we could never go back. Break the cycle now by running into the arms of God. He is there for you. All right, we're going to take some time now. Um, I went way over. To, um, to, to think about and pray about the purity that God calls us to, the availability of God, and, and, you know, if you have a moment where you just need some prayer, just come on up and, and, and talk with me. I'll be up here. And, um, and, and just try to take this time to do some inventory and to accept God's forgiveness and maybe commit to a life of purity that maybe hasn't been lived up to this point.